We're in Joshua chapter 5. We're going to finish um, chapter 5. So we'll be in verse 13 through 15 this morning. I wanted to mention as we get started, um, if you're not a part of our prayer nights on Wednesday night, I want to encourage you to try to make an effort to be here this Wednesday. I feel like we need to focus um, praying a bit into abortion that um, as the house is passing things to respond to the Texas law. I think there are some spiritual things happening surrounding the issue of abortion. I think it's really interesting timing that we've been planning for months to launch a foster care ministry um, now. And so uh, I want to encourage you to to maybe fast, consider fasting, and be here as we ask the Lord to um, end abortion fully. We, w- we wanted it to end yesterday, okay? Abortion needs to have stopped yesterday. Um, so that'll happen this Wednesday. I want to encourage you to be a part of that. All right, Lord, so in Jesus' name, we come to you. As we conclude Joshua chapter 5, we pray that your presence would settle upon us, that you would speak to us. Lord, we ask that you would impart to our souls a fresh passion, a fresh zeal, a fresh reverence for your glory. Oh, Lord, bathe this place in your presence in this hour. Father, our heart is, is not to celebrate nice music or the gifts of any man. Our heart is to know your voice to know your power, to know your splendor in this place. So hide me behind the cross, Lord. Let my words glorify you. And Lord, may our souls be nourished by the bread of life this morning. I ask that this would be a time of feasting on the word of God. And church, if you just say, we love you, Lord. We love you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. Well, David Wilkerson preached a sermon called Holy Ground, where he made this introductory statement. God can't use a man until he gets him on holy ground. A holy God must have a holy man on holy ground. You remember how fiery David Wilkerson was. He didn't say anything without meaning it, man. (laughs) He was commenting on God's meeting with Moses in Exodus chapter 3 in the wilderness. And God telling Moses not to come near the bush, but to remove his sandals for where he stood was holy ground. He, along with others, commentators, emphasized that the removal of the sandals was a sign of submission, it was a sign of reverence, and it was a sign of surrender. That when God speaks to Moses from the burning bush, he's calling him to full obedience, to full devotion to his glory and his ways, to recognize his holiness and to respond appropriately by bowing. Wilkerson went on to say, Moses was on the mountain being stripped of all of his rights because that's what it was meant by the removal of the sandals. Israel was in the valley being stripped of all human strength. Moses would have no rights, Israel no strength, so that God can prove himself strong on their behalf. He was emphasizing that the rest of Moses' life, Moses certainly had his flaws and mistakes. There's no doubt about that. But overall, he was a man of humility. The scripture calls him the meekest man on earth. He was a man of obedience. He was a man um, of surrender. He was a man who met with God. The glory of the God would descend upon the tabernacle. The scripture says that he spoke with God face to face, mouth to mouth, as a man speaks with his friend. Moses was a man of, of full surrender to, to the Lord. Hebrews emphasizes that, that Moses even abandoned his position of worldly wealth. He was not a materialist in order to be identified with the Hebrews and to seek the coming city of God. And so Moses was, was fully surrendered to the will and the glory of God. I long for my kids to know the glory of the Lord, 
to have an encounter with God where all you can do is remove your sandals and say, this is a holy ground here. There's some point in my kid's life where they can't ride on my spiritual coattails. They'll need to know the glory of God in the secret place. I pray that they know His splendor, that they have a fear, a terrible fear, a holy fear, a passionate zeal for God, fiery love. I can't articulate fully what happened in my life when God began to meet with me. And I'm not trying to bolster up my own spirituality because I certainly don't know God at the measure and the depths as some do. But I have had a measure of God's anointing settle down upon me as I prayed. And I can't tell you what, what shifted the first time God really began to meet with me. All I can say is this, when you've known the glory of God, when He's settled in your prayer closet, culture's opinion of me no longer matters. All that matters is God's opinion of me. What you think about what I say really doesn't terrify me at night. What God thinks about what I've said terrifies me at night. I'm not concerned with what my neighbors think about my values or my morality. The only question that burns within my heart is, God, are you pleased? I live to satisfy you. I lived so that all of my life would bring pleasure to heaven. That my life would be incense to your nostrils. Are you pleased with me, God? It's the only question that really matters when a man's encountered the glory of the Lord. Now, in modern Western Christianity, I don't intend to be critical here. um, But I am bringing a nice critique. I'm smiling while I bring a critique. You see that? This is a smiling critique. Um, In modern Western Christianity, it really shifted in the 20th century. Um, We we started to emphasize, and and in all honesty, this was an offshoot of the Protestant Reformation. Um, The Protestant Reformation was about the authority of Scripture and particularly was about justification by faith alone. Meaning that you are saved not by your works, but you're saved by placing your faith in Christ. In the moment that any man or woman places faith in Christ, all of their sins are atoned for based on the blood of of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. And so where that went in in the 19th, 20th century, especially in the West was it went toward just pray the prayer and if you pray the prayer then your sins will be forgiven we'll give you a t-shirt and you can go on living your life however you want to live your life. Just pray the prayer and have your sins forgiven so that you don't have to go to hell. Now on one hand I'm saying that's a very beautiful thing to emphasize. I do want you to pray the prayer and I don't want you to go to hell. But that's not the fullest expression of the gospel. It wasn't as if Jesus came and died just so that you could pray the prayer and not go to hell. Think that when he, he died, we were also adopted into the family of God. And so when you really begin to ponder what adoption means, that God washed me of sin so that he could adopt me into his family. And so I have an inheritance primarily, and I have a right to know God intimately in fellowship. I have a, an inheritance, I have a heritage to, to know God in union, to feast at his table. Think when the cross, Jesus is on the cross, the veil was torn so that we could step behind the veil. We could live life behind the veil where God's glory rested. That my life could be lived in the very glory of God. If Moses knew the glory of God, Paul would argue, how much more should we under the new covenant know the glory of God? And so I'm not saying that our gospel presentation is wrong. I'm just saying that it's not the fullest expression of the gospel. That the blood of Jesus does forgive me of my sins. And that's wonderful. But it forgives me of my sins so that I could live life behind the veil. So that I could take my sandals off and know the glory of the God who created the universe. That I could know Him intimately and passionately. That I could experience His presence. 
And so the question today as we turn to Joshua chapter 5 is, have you known the burning bush experience? Have you met with the glory of God? Have you stood in His holy presence where God says, remove your sandals because where you stand is holy ground. And we have a real problem a real problem, in, again, in, in, our, in our day, in our era, of a lack of reverence for the holy. We have no reverence. And, and I don't mean that we should all put on five-piece suits and put our ties back on and that somehow your dress is reverence. Reverence has nothing to do with the way that you dress. It has everything to do with what's happening in your heart. I am concerned that we have no reverence for the holiness of God. And the product of having no reverence for the holiness of God is that you have no disdain for that which is detestable in the sight of God. So we treat God's holiness as common and we treat our sin as common. And that, friends, is not biblical. Not even close. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 5 and I'm going to get off my pedestal. Unless y'all make me mad again, then I'm going to get back on. I'm keeping it close. Okay, I'm keeping it close. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now let me, you know, work back again and give us a little bit of context because where we are in our series studying Joshua, it really paints the picture for what's happening here. Moses, who was the greatest leader in Israel's history, along with the generation that he led out of Egypt, would not be allowed to enter into the promised land, primarily because they've groaned uh, and and moaned in the wilderness. And so the word was that Joshua, Moses' assistant, would lead the, the next generation into the promised land, while all of those who came out of Egypt would die in the wilderness. So Moses climbs Mount Nebo. God allows him to see the promised land, but he's not allowed to enter, and Moses dies there on Mount Nebo. So in Joshua chapter 1, we're studying the transition of leadership from the life of Moses to the life of Joshua, from the wilderness generation to their children who will enter into the promised land. It's a great hour of transition. Transitions are always um, create insecurity. But what we find here is that Moses has prepared a young man, has trained a young man who would carry on the mantle of leadership. Now, as we studied Joshua chapter 1, we studied that transition, and when we moved in Joshua chapter 2, we found that Joshua's first task was going to be to lead the people of Israel across the Jordan River. The problem being that they don't have boats or ropes or bridges, and that this is the time of the year, the spring, when the Jordan River is really flooding, and the shores, the banks are flooded with water. And so Joshua's got to lead the people across the river, but God doesn't tell them how, how they'll get across the river until he says... Tell the priests to carry the Ark of the Covenant into the middle of the river. As they place their feet into the water, the water stops upstream, and they walk across the Jordan River on dry ground. This is a miracle we we studied, we talked about, that is parallel with Moses' leading people across the Red Sea. So God is saying to Israel, I am the God who led your parents across the Red Sea, and I am the God who leads you across the Jordan River. I am the God who brought you out of bondage, and I am the God who brings you into the promise. I am the God who starts, and I am the God who finishes. So now Israel, they've crossed the Jordan River and they're getting ready to go into the promised land. Now you remember what was said in the life of Moses with the spies spied out the land. They said in the promised land, there are giants. We look like grasshoppers in front of them. And so um, 
as they cross the Jordan River, their immediate response is to want to run to Jericho, to charge the walls, to capture the city. They have an element of surprise. We have a war to fight. Let's get ready to fight. But God does not permit Israel to immediately run to a fight. But the first thing he tells them is this. I want you to gather stones from the river, go back in the Jordan River, gather 12 stones, because it's going to matter that you remember. Your first commission, Israel, is to remember that I am the God who brought you across the river. Secondly, God says, I want you to circumcise all of your men. Now, we talked about that being a real problem, because the men were the soldiers. Now, Israel's encamped at the plains of Gilgal, and Jericho's just to the right, and uh, the the Midianites are preparing. Um, And so, for all of the men to be circumcised would be to have no protection. The men would like to charge the gates of Jericho, not receive circumcision. And so that, that really opened up a place of vulnerability for the people of Israel because the men are going to take at least three to four days to recover. So rather than preparing their swords, they're yelling at each other across the tents, how are you healing up over there, buddy? So now the Israelites, have the men have all been circumcised and they are very, very glad that that's over with. The next thing God says is, um, rather than preparing for battle, I want you to prepare the Passover feast. And so the enemies of Israelites are camped around them, watching to see what they're doing. And the Israelites are not, not practicing formation. They're not sharpening their swords. They're not seeking for new weaponry. The Israelites are preparing the table to celebrate the Passover. And there we learn what God says. That your strength is not in your military strategy. Your strength is in your blood covenant with me. Your strength is in the blood of the Lamb that was shed on your behalf. And God is declaring, I will judge all of those who are not under the blood of this Lamb, but you, Israel, don't bite your nails, don't fret, don't live in anxiety. You have a unique covenant based on the blood of the Lamb. Your strength, your source of security, your source of provision is in this. Prepare the Passover feast. Now, that's where we find ourselves today. Israel's just celebrated the Passover, and what we read is that we find Joshua now, Passover's over, and he's walking near the gates, near the walls of Jericho. Now, our entire passage today is eerie. It's, it's mysterious. It has a measure of mystery about it. We're not exactly sure what Joshua is doing. We're not told that he's alone, but the text seems to imply that he's alone. It tells us that Joshua was by Jericho. Joshua, we've said this before, is the greatest military strategist of all of the scripture. Um, he's the greatest warrior. He has a sharp mind. He's, he can think and plot and plan. And so you can imagine Joshua as the military leader. In this place of vulnerability, you understand the vulnerability of leadership, right? If Joshua loses the battle with Jericho, he's not just putting his family at risk. He's putting all of his kin at risk, right? So he's, he's in a vulnerable position. So he's walking near Jericho. The scripture again seems to apply that he's alone. And he's walking, thinking, plotting, musing. Was it early morning and was it late at night? The scripture doesn't tell us, but it seems clear that Joshua, as the leader of Israel during the day, would be dealing with issues, would be talking about the law, would be, you know, settling matters. During the day, I'm sure his day was filled with busyness. So maybe it's early morning. Or maybe it's as the sun begins to set because the work of the day is done. But he walks alone and he thinks, Lord, what is your plan for us? Lord, this, this city, Jericho, has thick walls. How do you see us conquering this city? And then you think, well, again, Joshua, 
lived his entire life under Moses' leadership. And the scripture again says that Moses went to the tabernacle and met with the glory of God. And so Joshua heard the prayer life of Moses. So maybe he's beginning to pray as he's thinking about the walls of Jericho. Maybe he heard Moses pray in times of trial and he's echoing those ancient phrases he heard fall from the lips of his mentor. He begins to say, show us your face, God. Show us your glory, God. Show us your will and your wisdom and your plans, God. Where are we going? What do you want me to do? How do we move forward? How do we honor you in the midst of trial? He walks alone. The scripture says that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, there was a man with sword drawn. Now again, Joshua is a soldier, man. You don't just get caught off guard. It seems to apply that he had his head down, that he was kind of musing, walking, thinking. And he looks up and as his eyes begin to look up towards the horizon, there's a man standing with sword drawn. I imagine Joshua begins to experience fight or flight, right? His anxiety begins to flow. And so his first response to this soldier standing before him with a sword drawn is, are you for us or against us? Are you going to cut me down or are you going to help me cut them down? You can imagine, again, in fight or flight, Joshua's thinking about, we're about to have a little hand-to-hand combat. I've told you before that I am a black belt and you don't want to see me in hand-to-hand combat. And that is what the Bible calls a lie, okay? It's forbidden. So again, this eeriness about it, Joshua's caught off guard by a man standing with a sword drawn, and his question is, are you for us or for our adversaries? The man with a sword drawn replies, no, I am the commander of the Lord's army, and now I have come. The commander of the Lord's army. Some commentators try to imply that what Joshua, what, what the man, the angel of the Lord is saying to Joshua here is this, that, that you think you're the commander of Israel's army, but I am actually the commander of Israel's army. I don't think that's at all what's happening here. It seems very clearly from a holistic biblical perspective that what the angel of the Lord is saying to Joshua is, I am the commander of angelic hosts. I am the commander of angel armies that the Lord dispatches at his will. And this angel of the Lord says to Joshua, Now I have come. What does that mean? I think he is saying, Now I have come. Now that you, this generation, now that you have chosen to be a people of covenant, now that you have chosen to worship before you went to war, now you've chosen to trust me, to celebrate the Passover in the face of your enemies, now that you've really determined to walk with the God of your fathers, now I have come. You didn't cross the Jordan River and run straight into Jericho. You crossed and worshipped. You crossed and prayed. You crossed and feasted and celebrated the blood of the Lamb. Now I have come. I will be your strength. I will be the God of this kind of people. Joshua, you have chosen to be a man of worship. And in that choosing, I come. Now that you've remembered. In your moment of struggle, Joshua... While you're walking and musing and planning and plotting, while you're experiencing the face of fear and anxiety and nervousness, while you're considering the walls of Jericho, which seem impenetrable, Joshua, now, in this hour, I have come. Because you are a people of worship. Now I've come to your aid. He says, you will not fight alone, but you have heavenly armies who fight alongside You won't scale Jericho's walls. I will bring them down. The commander 
of the Lord's army says to Joshua, you have an ally. And now, not to over-apply this text, but I want you to know that from my perspective, I get I'm a little pessimistic, I get it. From my perspective, we have some serious battles coming towards the church in our day. There's no, no shadow of a doubt in my mind that there are battles coming our way. We need to remember that we have heavenly armies fighting on our behalf. I don't have to respond out of the grit of my arm, out of the strength of my soul. I'm, I'm not the ultimate online debater ready to win every fight. My first response is not to engage in battle, but it's to engage in worship. To put my face on the ground and cry out to the Lord that there would be angelic deliverance brought to a spiritual battle that's plaguing our nation. We have battles coming our way, but we do not fight as people who fight alone. We don't tremble in fear as if we're left to our own devices. The scripture says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The gates of hell shall not prevail against us. We don't live cowering in fear or trembling and biting our nails. We live on our toes, pressing forward, believing for the kingdom to come. But ultimately, we live with our shoes off because we stand in the glorious presence of God And we bow our knees and we ask for the strength of the Lord to be in our midst. The first thing the commander of the Lord's army says to Joshua is you will not fight alone. Now I have come. Now what the scripture says is really interesting. The scripture says Joshua fell down and worshipped. There are a few things that we know biblically. One, angels never receive worship. Go with me to Revelation chapter 22 verse 8 and 9. This is John the Revelator, his vision. He says... I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. So we know that angels, mere angels, never receive worship. And we also know that from a biblical perspective, the Old Testament will oftentimes use the phrase angel of the Lord, angel of Yahweh, when it speaks of what we call a theophany. God speaking to Abraham by the oak, he spoke with the angel of the Lord. Moses, it says that when he was speaking with God at the burning bush, he spoke with the angel of the Lord who was at the burning bush. And then the text interchanges the word Elohim for God or Yahweh. It uses the word Yahweh. And so it's very clear that the angel of the Lord in this context is God himself. We're talking about a theophany. And so angels don't receive worship. But do you know who does receive worship? Jesus receives worship. That's another great testimony to the deity of Christ, that he is co-equal with the Father, co-heir with the Father and the Spirit. Look with me at John chapter 9 quickly. This is when Jesus heals the blind man by spitting in the, uh, in the mud, making mud and applying it to his eyes. The blind man uh, was healed on a Sabbath day, which, you know, always ticks religious people off. And so they bring the blind man and ask him, what happened? And the blind man says, I don't know, I was blind and now I see. And so they bring his parents is that your son? And his parents are like, he's old enough to testify on his own. Leave us alone. The scripture says in chapter 9 of John's gospel, verse 35, Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? That's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. The scripture says on several occasions that Jesus receives worship. 
So Joshua falls down to worship the commander of the Lord's army. And we know that this is a theophany, that this is God appearing in the form of an angelic being. Most believe, scholars believe, and I think there's plenty of reason to believe this, that when the scripture speaks of theophanies in the Old Testament, that it's most likely the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, appearing to speak to people. It's God speaking to people. It's Jesus pre-incarnate, before he became man. And so it's very likely, and I believe, that Joshua here spoke with Jesus. Isn't it funny to think of Jesus with a sword drawn? That's just a picture that we don't think of often. Although John says in Revelation that he comes with a sword from his mouth. So what we find here is that Joshua, as he's walking outside of the walls of Jericho, thinking, plotting, planning, sees what I believe, Jesus standing with a sword drawn and says, I am the commander of the Lord's army. Joshua falls down and worships. And then he asks a question. An important question. A valid question. Joshua says, what do you say to me? Now, this is one of those moments in Scripture where we all love, right? Where, where someone's trying to have a conversation with God and God's having a totally separate conversation. It's just like Him, okay? And so, um, again, think, Joshua's a military strategist. Now he's speaking to the commander of angelic armies. His problem is Jericho. And he's saying, what do you say to me? You know, how are we, we going to take Jericho? What do you want me to do? You give me your strategy. I'll submit to your strategy, commander of the Lord's armies. What do I do? Do I attack from the east, attack from the west? Do we surround the city? Do we scale it with ropes? What do you want from me? And the angel of the Lord, who I believe to be Jesus, says to Joshua, take off your shoes, for you're standing as holy ground. How do you want me to attack Jericho? Take your shoes off. Not prepare the troops and attack from the east. Not sharpen your blades and prepare your weapons. God is saying to Joshua, I'm not asking you to be concerned with the particulars of how you'll conquer Jericho. I'm asking you to be concerned with the particulars of your heart. God's saying to Joshua, stop worrying about tomorrow's battles. Let's talk about your soul, Joshua. Take your sandals off your feet and bow before me. Take the sandals off your feet and surrender and worship and humble yourself And give me fully a heart that burns with zeal for me. I'll handle the particulars, Joshua. I'm not concerned with tomorrow's fight. I am totally concerned with whether or not you're a man of worship. Jericho is no problem for God with a man of worship in his hands. When a man who's totally surrendered himself to the will and the plans of God takes off his shoes in reverence and opens his hands... God anoints a man with his Holy Ghost, with his Holy Spirit, and there are no walls that can stop what's about to come. When God gets a hold of a young praying man or woman, when God gets a hold of a young man or woman with an evangelistic gift, you can see nations shaken in a moment. Oh, old men of God used to say, one day someone's going to pick up the Bible and really believe it, and then everyone else is going to be embarrassed. God says to Joshua, you're gifted. You are a great thinker. You're a great fighter. None of that matters if you're not surrendered. None of that matters if you don't revere my holiness. 
Now, what we've stumbled into is this, is that this is an exact replication. This is a replay of what happens with Moses and the Lord in Exodus chapter 3. So let me read that to you. Exodus chapter 3, verse 2 through 6. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Joshua knew of this story. The scripture says in Joshua chapter 1 that he already had the book of the law, and so we believe Moses wrote Exodus, and so Joshua already had a a full account of all that happened. Joshua knew how Moses met with God in the wilderness. Joshua knew that Moses humbled himself before God, removed his sandals, surrendered himself to the wills and the plan of God. Joshua had a prototype, a pattern of what to do when you're struggling. Joshua had a pattern of what to do when you're faced with trials. Get before God. We need to make sure that our children and grandchildren know what to do when they catch a bad diagnosis. We need to make sure that our children and grandchildren know what to do when it feels like their financial world is about to collapse. We need to make sure that they have a pattern to get before God's holiness, remove your sandals, bow your heart and worship. So here again, we find Joshua walking alone. Getting alone with God. Why? I think because he saw Moses get alone with God on several occasions. The scripture says when Moses was on the mountain for 40 days, remember he comes down and he finds Aaron and the little golden calf and everyone's worshiping because they couldn't wait any longer. Moses, we didn't know where you went. The scripture says that Joshua waited patiently the entire time. Moses came down the mountain. There was Joshua ready to walk. Joshua knew a man who got alone with God often and for long periods of time. Joshua knew a leader who walked with God patiently, who didn't move without hearing from God. And so now, in this moment of chaos, we find him alone with God. And the Lord's response is, not attack from the east. Humble your heart. Make sure you're a man of worship. Now from here, you should be asking, well, what does this have to do with us, Caleb? Like, you just yacked for 45 minutes, we're tired and hungry. What does any of that have to do with us? That's your fault. You guys don't listen fast enough. You know that. We know that about you at this point. Your least favorite verse in all of the Bible, I know what it is. It's this, in this life, you will have trouble. You hate that verse, I know. The end is okay, but take heart because I've overcome the world. We get it, Jesus. Um, The scriptural principle is plain, though, that we're going to have storms. We're going to have trials. There's no doubt about that. But the mature learned to navigate trials appropriately. Okay, so we were at the river at, at, at All Joy Landing, you know, with our kids. And we have four, and so three older girls, and Ike is a year and a half, and so... All the girls are in the water playing, and you know the river. It's not like they're big waves, but there's some wake coming. And I'm watching Ike. I'm sitting on the bank watching Ike, um, trying to learn to navigate the water. You know, and like, if you have four functioning brain cells, you know not to walk right where the wave's about to cap, all right? That ain't going to work out good for you. Um, 
But I just walked straight into the, the, the capping little wave, smacked him on his back, and he was, you know, all, all in a panic attack, crying and screaming. I was watching and not laughing, but laughing because he hasn't yet learned, like, there's a shoulder over there of the wave. Just, you kind of walk around it, bud. Don't walk right into it. I milked it for all it's worth, you know, because while he's panicking, he wants to cuddle and be held, and, you know, little boys don't want that. And so I, oh my gosh, you almost died. <laughs> get as much of that as I can get. But I was thinking, you know, storms do come. No doubt about that. Some weather storms better than others, though. I believe that we're about to face a storm that many in the church are not ready for. I believe that. Some people, some churches will weather the storm better than others. I think that there are times coming, and some we've already seen, where the enemy even... He tempts us to rise up with anger. And we feel like we're rising up with righteous anger. And so we act out of this feeling of righteous anger. And all of a sudden we're, we're an internet combat warrior, you know. And we're, we're battling all the little kids on the internet. All these millennials, you know. On the internet, we're battling them. We're letting them know how it's going to be. I think that there is a day coming when we'll have to stand up and speak. There's no doubt about that. There's a day coming when you'll have to be vocal about your faith. And that's just, that just is what it is. I don't think that your first response should always be to rise up with this kind of anger and attack. The days are coming when there will be a season when some will attack out of this kind of zeal and they will seem bold at first. And we'll all go, look how courageous they are. But give it a little time and we'll realize that what they just slipped into was a very, very clever snare of hell. Because the first response of the church that learns to navigate the storm is not to attack the walls of Jericho. But it's to take her shoes off in the presence of the Lord and worship. There's a time when we open our mouths. Again, no doubt about that. But I need to make sure that when I'm opening my mouth, the things that are coming off my lips honor the holy God of the universe. And so fights are coming. I'm, I'm very aware of that. But the way that you fight is going to show whether or not you're a wise one who's really revered the holiness of God. Whether you're a coward, sorry for saying that, but that's going to come. Or whether you're the immature who rushed Jericho and say, we'll take it and we'll conquer it without first putting your face in the carpet and crying out for the glorious presence of God to fall upon you. Again, with the principle being known that when God has a man who's totally surrendered to him, there are no gates of hell that could possibly prevail. When my heart's totally surrendered to God, there are no strategies that demonic principalities can conjure up to work against me that will ever conquer. When my heart's totally surrendered to God, the anointing of the Holy Ghost on my life is perfectly capable of dealing with demonic warfare. When my heart is surrendered to God fully, then God can shake a nation. It may feel bold at first to run your mouth. You need to make sure you're running your mouth with your sandals off, though. Does that make sense? I said this to the church earlier, and I'll say it to you. This, I've got very bad news for you today. Every one of you are going to die eventually. Um, and so at some point in your life, you're going to get a bad diagnosis. Okay, just go ahead and get over that. Um, what we do in a moment of bad diagnosis matters. We always trust God for healing, right? Pray for healing, believe for healing. But we also know that there's a point in the day for every man to die. And so there's, that's coming. What do we do in moments of trial? 
Sometimes even believing, even, even, even rising up and saying, you know, we quote that Psalm, I will not die, but I will live, feels bold. Um, but you ain't going to live forever. The scripture says that death is the last enemy to be conquered. And so even the way that we rise up matters. I think if the Lord gives you a prophetic word that you're not going to die, you're going to live, stand on it, man, believe it. But there is a sense in which a bad diagnosis comes and you say before your children and your grandchildren, my heart is surrendered to the holy God of the universe. I will trust him for healing. Even if it doesn't come, I will not bow to fear. I will not tremble. I will not bite my nails down until they bleed. I worship. All my life is his worship. All my life is is pouring out my adoration on God. Breaking open my perfume and spilling it on the feet of Jesus. I've got no other purpose. I've got no other sense of calling or worth if it's not first bathed in this. Removing my sandals. And if my heart's first response to trial is not, oh, trials will come. I belong to the God of the universe. And Jesus' blood has washed me and cleansed me and bought me. I've been purchased, right? Like, I am purchased by the God of the universe. Oh, death will come. And this is where you find Paul saying, oh, death, where is your sting? What does he mean? What is death to me? I believe the greatest need in our day is simply this higher worship, fuller doxology. I believe our churches have been too concerned with being the biggest and the baddest, and we have not been concerned enough with bringing rich worship to the throne room of God. Worship team, if you'd come for me. I want to ask you this morning, is your heart fully devoted? Have you removed your sandals in the presence of a holy God? Or do you, live a, do you live a kind of casual Christianity that treats God as common and casual and kind of, you know, patty cakes your sin? Or are you totally surrendered to the glorious nature of our triune God? Do you love him with all your heart, your soul? Has your heart been circumcised so that you cannot love anyone else? I love that concept. I prayed that this week, you know, you had these little moments where you're struggling I was praying, Lord, circumcise my heart to love no one but you and you alone. Is that the kind of Christian life you live? Because God is looking for men and women who are totally devoted to his glorious nature. And when he gets them, there's nothing hell can conjure up. Go ahead and stand to your feet for me. Altar team, if you want to get in place. Todd's trying to knock me off the stage with that sound. Ultimately, what I'd like to do today is I want to pray and I want to ask that we would continue to be a church whose heart is worship first, doxology, full praise. We belong to him. One of the beautiful things about this local church in particular, I don't, I don't think there was ever a day in this local church's life where the goal was to see how influential we can be or to see if we could be the, the greatest preacher in town or have the best worship, if we could see, if we could have the biggest following. I think this local church, the posture of the, this church was always, we just come together to worship and to glorify God and to sing our songs and to bow our knees and to belong to Jesus. I don't think that 
any church is perfect, so I'm not saying that this church has been perfect, but the heritage, the legacy of this house is the glory of God first, worship first. And nothing else really matters. We're just going to get in his presence and exalt him and belong to him. And I want to pray as we close today that we would find that legacy and carry that legacy on for decades to come. I pray that a hundred years from now, when young and old folks walk through these doors, what they find is a house filled with the glory of God. Maybe not the biggest and baddest. I hope the hungriest. Hungry for God's glory and presence. Well, before we get there, before we pray, we would be amiss if we didn't tell you or ask you if you've ever really given your life to Christ Jesus. The scripture teaches that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means this, that on the last day, every one of us will stand before a holy God to be judged. And in eternity, there are only two types of people, guilty and forgiven. There are no people in eternity who will say, I earned heaven because I lived really holy. They will either say, I am judged or I am washed. So this morning we want to say to you this. We don't care what happened last night. We don't care what happened last week. You could say, I committed adultery on my wife. I'm a drunk. I'm a drug addict. I've committed some great financial sin. None of that is keeping you out of the kingdom of God. The blood of Jesus is perfectly capable of cleansing you of your adulterous past. The question is not what you did last week. The question is, what will you do this morning? And whether or not you'll bow your knee and cry out to God and surrender and plead the blood of the Lamb over your life. There's no person in this room who's perfect. I know them, okay? I know these people. There are only forgiven people here. And so we'd be amiss if we didn't offer you this first. If you've never given your life to Christ, if you're unsure of your eternal destiny, you can be sure today that you belong to God, not because you've performed, but because Jesus died on your behalf. He took your place there on the cross and he spilled his blood so that you could be washed and forgiven. If that's you, I want to ask you to not leave this room today without getting right with God. The scripture says today is the day of salvation. Don't deny him another hour. Stop worrying about what your friends and relatives think. Start worrying about what your God thinks. Today is your day. Don't leave here without getting right with God. Two, there were a couple words of knowledge that came forth this morning. Word of knowledge is a spiritual gift where the Holy Spirit highlights a couple things in people that we think he wants to minister to. One, there was a word of knowledge that someone's here struggling with frequent digestive issues. Like your stomach is constantly turning. We believe the Holy Spirit's highlighting you today and wants to heal you. There was a word of knowledge that someone's got a knee issue. It's bone on bone. We believe the Holy Spirit's highlighting you today. We want to ask you to come and receive prayer. We believe he's here to heal. And lastly, there was a word that many have put down their mantles. You've quit pursuing your call. You've quit living on fire and on purpose. And you've kind of laid down and just you're beginning to float through life. And the prophetic word that came forward this morning was today's the day to pick up your mantle. Today's the day to get back in the altar, surrender your life, take your shoes off and say, God, here I am, send me. If that's you, I want to ask you to come. So the altars are officially open. I don't want you to hesitate. I don't want you to look around. If you need ministry, just come get in the altars. We believe God's going to move this morning. And Seth, would you lead us as we pray that we would continue to be a people of his presence? Again, don't hesitate. Don't look around. You just, you just come do business with God.